Let me pray as we begin. Lord of all wisdom, we give you our minds. Take them and think through them and help us to grasp the truths that your spirit reveals in the written word. For your glory we ask it. Amen. There's a memorable exchange between Jesus and some of his critics Uh, Later in the gospel, Pharisees, Matthew 22, verse 42, where he says to them, What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they replied, rightly enough, the son of David. It's a good question. It's a question one way or another. Every one of us needs to ask about the one who changed the face of history and whose two billion-plus followers today constitute the greatest spiritual movement the world has ever seen. Who is Jesus? Whose son is he? And what are the implications of that question for uh, me and you? Well, we're in a little morning series, as regulars will know, in the run-up to the coronation in a fortnight's time. And however it's eventually shaped, the coronation will be a Christian event, with echoes of a ceremony largely unchanged for over a thousand years. Since 973, when in Bath Abbey, Dunstan, the Archbishop of Canterbury, crowned Edgar, King of England. And the coronation liturgy, then and now, looks beyond any earthly kingship to the rule and reign of Jesus, the King, who is, of course, our focus. And Matthew opens his thrilling gospel by setting the scene for what we now know was, in fact, the most remarkable royal occasion the world has ever seen. The birth of a baby. A birth that changed history. Last week we were reflecting that lineage, pedigree, descent matter. We know that. Of course, that's at the heart of royal succession. And we saw last week in verses 1 to 17 that Matthew, for his originally largely Jewish audience, made a legal case for Jesus. If he's to be king, the king, it has to be established beyond doubt that he has the right to reign. That he is the seed of Abraham and the son of David. The one in whom God says yes to the amazing promises made to both those men. That the whole world would be blessed through this process. And that eventually an unfailing kingly rule of peace and love and joy would be established. We saw, too, that in that lineage, Matthew underlined that it was a striking, a strangely unsettling thing. It included people we might not have chosen, experiences we would certainly not have wanted, and events which we would not even have imagined, all to reassure us that when God does promise something, we can really take it to the bank. And now at verse 18, having looked at the whose son is he human story, Matthew turns again in a disarmingly matter-of-fact sort of way to the same question. It's time to tell us that this is not just the son of David, 
but the Son of God. In 1 to 17, Matthew's at pains to demonstrate Jesus' humanity, and now in 18 to 25, he wants to disclose his divinity. This Messiah is not only human, he must be divine too. And there's a little verbal link at the beginning of these two sections of the chapter, which we slightly miss in the English translation. In verse 1 of the chapter, Matthew says, this is the Genesis, genealogy. This is the genesis of Jesus, a new beginning, uh, almost a recreation. The same word comes again in verse 18. This is how the birth, genesis of Jesus came about. This is all God's work, creation work from the beginning. In the first creation story, the Spirit of God moved over the face of the deep. God spoke and the world came into being. Here's another process. By the spirit and promise of God in the incarnation of the Son, there's a whole new beginning. How far does God go to make good his promises? Answer, this far, almost to the point of doing creation all over again. A second Adam the head of a new creation. God now writes himself into the drama of history. He goes to infinite lengths to make himself one whom we can know personally. And that's wonderful. Now, perhaps it's to appeal again to his largely Jewish initial audience that Matthew focuses on Joseph's perspective here. Joseph's a bit of a forgotten hero in all this, isn't he? I mean, I rather admire him. I've come to admire him a bit more this week. Luke, in his chapter 1, unpacks essentially Mary's story. But here the emphasis is on Joseph's story. Now, it's worth saying that both these men, and as we come to consider what they say as writers, it's, it's worth saying that neither is likely to have been gullible or slow on the uptake, because what they decide to describe, frankly, is not entirely for the faint-hearted. Luke was a doctor, Matthew was with the revenue. They could do objectivity. And yes, medicine's come a long way in 20 centuries. We know all about X and Y chromosomes, IVF and surrogacy, but it isn't a recent discovery that virgins don't have babies. C.S. Lewis tells a little story of a time near Christmas. His study window was open and carol singers were outside in the quad and could be heard. And Lewis was with another sceptical colleague. And the familiar words of the carols we know so well, late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, and, you know, lo, he abhorred not the virgin's womb, so on. And his colleague smiled condescendingly to Lewis and said, aren't we glad that we know better than that? And Lewis replied, and your point is? And the friend said, well, aren't you glad that we know virgins don't have babies? And Lewis paused for a moment and said, don't you think they knew that too? (laughs) Isn't that the point? In Matthew's account, a royal baby was born in unique circumstances and in a unique way. The statisticians I discovered tell us that at present 259 babies are born in the world every minute. 
None is born like this. There was no precedent for conception without a human father. End of verse 18, Mary had not had sexual intercourse. Before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. And that's it. That's it. Of the billions of humans who've lived throughout history, and there are eight billion of us alive today, Christian conviction is that only one entered the world this way. And for over 1,500 years, as we did this morning, we've said together in the Apostles' Creed, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Now, yes, of course, of course, the virgin birth, or more accurately, perhaps, the virginal conception of Jesus has been attacked inside and outside the church down the centuries. They said Alexander the Great's mother, Olympias, had been made pregnant by Zeus. And this is just another pagan story like that, isn't it? They said this was an invention by the early church of a sort of spectacular origin for Jesus to gain attention for the message. They said this was no more than a metaphor of how God can do great things, a sort of entrance myth in the phrase of the late U.S. Bishop Jack Spong. They said it was just biologically ridiculous. Though one shrewd commentator I read this week is perhaps right to respond that a sinless man is a greater miracle in the moral order than a virgin birth in the biological. Don't ever let anybody tell you that the virgin birth is unimportant. Listen to Scott's theologian, Donald MacLeod, who puts it well. The virgin birth is posted on guard at the door to the mystery of Christmas. And none of us must think of hurrying past it. It stands on the threshold of the New Testament, blatantly supernatural, defying our rationalism, informing us that all that follows belongs to the same order as itself, and that if we find that offensive, there is no point in proceeding further. Or, here's the late Jim Packer. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is this truth of the Incarnation. The Incarnation itself is an unfathomable mystery, but it makes sense of everything else in the New Testament. Look, don't miss the irony here. The first two people who had a problem with the virgin birth are Mary and Joseph. And Matthew means us to see that. Bishop Tom Wright comments dryly, when Joseph heard about Mary's pregnancy, his problem arose not because he didn't know the facts of life, but because he did. And Matthew gets that. Well, Joseph's called, in verse 16, the husband of Mary. Verse 19, again, he's called her husband. They were, verse 18, do you see that? Pledged to be married. Arrangements then went way beyond the contemporary phase that we call engagement. This was a bigger commitment. The first stage of a marital process was actually complete. And death or a divorce was needed to end this arrangement. It was serious commitment. And they're probably both teenagers 
And the extended family may have helped to arrange things. And Joseph's whole future is wrapped up in this local girl he's probably known for as long as he can remember. A young woman who held the key to all his plans and expectations and anticipations. Someone he loved and trusted and respected. But a girl who returns from a trip to her cousin's house pregnant with a baby that couldn't have been his. Listen to their conversation. I need to tell you something. What? I'm pregnant. And God caused it. Yeah, right. (laughs) It's too incredible. It may even be delusional. Well, it doesn't need much imagination to sense the fear and the confusion and the distress as Joseph's very life is knocked off course. Matthew tells us two things about Joseph here, and it's worth noting them in verse 19. First, he was a righteous man, faithful to the law. But second, he was also kind. The law left him with no real alternative. It had to be divorce. That was the only honorable step. It was the right thing to do. He couldn't participate in sin or law-breaking, and she must be guilty of some horrible infidelity. That was the only reasonable conclusion from the bare fact. But, but, Mary was someone he still loved. And um, he, end of verse 19, wanted to do it all quietly, decently, keeping the lawyers at bay. Minimizing shame and stigma at best, and possibly violence to her at worst. So, verse 20, he considers this. He thinks it through. Isn't it interesting, and I thought about this a little bit this week, isn't it interesting the kind of man God chose for his son to have as an earthly father? A man who loved God, loved his law, but who was also kind and who thought about things and who ultimately and humbly, end of our passage, verses 24 and 25, simply obeyed and got on with it. Joseph here seems to me to be a man of remarkable spiritual stature and strength, ready to take the flack that was flowing from all these extraordinary events. It's maybe a wise word to fathers. Well, let's press on. Verse 20, an angel of the Lord tells Joseph in a dream that the human life growing inside Mary has come not from any human being, but from the heavenly Father. So Joseph learns that he'll be Jesus' father only in a secondary sense. And he takes that after the dream. Mary is pregnant by the Holy Spirit. God is the real father. Now, how can a human child born to be king be the divine son of God? Answer, only if God's involved in the conception. The Holy Spirit, in some way we can never explain, but at which we can only wonder, fertilized an ovum in Mary, conceiving from the glory of heaven the divine zygote of the Son of God. Wow. The eternally pre-existent person of Christ was conceived in a human mother by a direct divine 
without sexual activity or substitute of any kind. And in those simple phrases, twice repeated, verse 18, through the Holy Spirit, verse 20, from the Holy Spirit, Matthew takes us into the very heart of one of the greatest mysteries and wonders of the universe. You know, of all the things Christianity claims, this is perhaps the most staggering of all. And frankly, to me, it's baffling that the Christian festival that the whole world purports to love, that's to say Christmas, makes in some ways the most extraordinary demands on our comprehension and credulity. Again, Jim Packer put it well. God became man. The divine son became a Jew. The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught like any other child. The babyhood of the Son of God was a reality. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Or here is C.S. Lewis writing in chapter 15 of Miracles, where he struggles movingly, I think, to articulate this. Once God's life-giving finger touched a woman without passing through the ages of interlocked events. Once the great glove of nature was taken off his hand. His naked hand touched her. There was, of course, a unique reason for it. That time he was creating not simply a man, but the man who was himself. Was creating man anew, was beginning at this divine and human point, the new creation of all things. The whole soiled and weary universe quivered at this direct injection of essential life, direct, uncontaminated, not drained through all the crowded history of nature. The virgin birth, like everything else in this remarkable chapter, is intended to establish the identity of Jesus. It's what makes possible what the New Testament teaches. The full deity and full humanity, and that those can be united perfectly in one person. For the Hebrew mindset, that was a huge ask. It is for our mindset too. You know, if Jesus had simply appeared, sort of come down to earth without being born, it would be hard to see how he could be human like us. But if he'd been born of two human parents in the usual way, it would be hard to see how he could be fully God and, importantly, free from the contamination of sin affecting every one of us. If he'd been born with a sinful nature, he could never have been a sinless saviour. No, this is a moment of radical new beginning in the human story. The author writes himself into the drama. God enters our space, our frail humanity, himself. It's a little bit like a sort of rerun of creation. Just as in first, in creation, the spirit moved over the waters of the earth to bring light to birth. So in this new creation, the spirit moved into the uterus of a young woman called Mary to form the one who was to be the light of the world. And in that nanosecond of history, the 
infinity and eternity of God was somehow joined to all the limitations of space and time in our humanity. The infinite becomes finite, the invisible becomes visible, the sustainer becomes dependent. He was made like us in everything apart from our sin. But in that instant, there came into being also the only person with the capacity to do what God required to establish our salvation. Joseph's told by an angel in a dream, verse 21, that he's not only to take Mary back and to love her and protect her in her marriage and family life and so on, but he's to name the child Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And yeah, it was a popular common name at the time. It was the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew Joshua, the Lord saves. But here it's freighted with spiritual significance. Here was Jesus' supreme work anticipated. Here was the name that God chose for him. The name the Father decided was most appropriate for his son. And it's a mark of a special office. It's the designation of his primary function. Charles Spurgeon, the great 19th century preacher here in London, tells how he walked into a churchyard and chanced on what was obviously a child's grave. And the little headstone read, sacred to the memory of Methuselah Coney, who lived six months. And that child's life, sadly, belied his name, he reflected. With Jesus, it was exactly the opposite. The name Jesus is the name that perfectly expresses what our Lord and King really does. And every time that name Jesus is pronounced, the gospel is signaled. His sin-bearing death in our place, is anticipated. He faced the darkness and death that we might avoid it. And three decades before he endured the cross, Jesus endured the birth canal, all for us. Now, I'm not talking, of course, about the name Jesus as a sort of ubiquitous swear word. Don't you feel the stab of pain every time you hear that sort of horrible misuse, public or on the tube or whatever it is? No, I mean Yahweh saves, Jesus the Lord. That's what signals the gospel every time the word is uttered. We don't save ourselves. We sang that a moment ago. We don't save one another. We're not going to be saved through politics or education or culture or um, social progress. No, God does this for us. All of it. What's Jesus' mission? Why did he come? Here it is in verse 21, to save his people from their sins. Wait a minute, says somebody. I thought Jesus came to empower us and to love us. Yes, he did. But first he came to rescue and forgive us. Because everything else flows from that. This is God work. 
And the Old Testament in verses like Isaiah 43:11 made that clear. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me there is no Savior. Peter said the same in Acts 4.12. It's stark. Salvation is found no one in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And then in verses 22 and 23 of our passage, glance down at those, Matthew breaks in to reinforce all this with a, a glorious quotation from Isaiah 7.14, back in the 8th century BC, giving us the other name in this passage, the one we know so well, which we need to get hold of as we reflect on the true identity of Jesus. Emmanuel, we know it so well which means God with us. Nobody in those days dared give that name to their boy. That would have been perhaps a step too far culturally and religiously. The context of Isaiah's time had been a genuine fear the kingly line might be lost and that the people might be overwhelmed. No, God has said through him, look down the corridors of history and there will be a virgin-born child who will guarantee that David's line will never be broken. And here he is, and he's called Jesus. And he's God and he's human, and he's with us. The incarnation didn't happen merely to let us know that God exists. It happened to bring him near so that he can be with us uh, and, and we can be with him. He literally moved heaven and earth to get near us, for us. He's gone to infinite lengths to make himself one that we can know personally. This is the one who's ultimately going to rule and reign over an entirely renewed earth. And he longs for each of us to be part of that story uh, with him. Tim Keller puts it well. In Jesus, the ineffable, unapproachable God becomes a human being who can be known and loved and through faith we can know this love. This does not stun us as much as it should. Well, time time is gone. We've been exploring Matthew's remarkable introduction to his gospel. He's helped us begin to see who Jesus really is and why he came. And if this is all true, and if Jesus is who he says, then the decision to center your whole life on him is not ultimately that difficult a one to want to make. The genealogy is now complete, but the great story isn't. And the only remaining question is whether our names will will be added to that family tree. Jesus is, Matthew reminds us, God with us, who seizes the initiative, rescues the rebellious, 
transforms the troubled. And when things look beyond hope and human possibilities have seemingly run out, gloriously, joyously, wondrously achieves, even, if I may use the phrase in the context, the seemingly inconceivable. To him be all the glory, now and forever. Amen.